Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before the Lord, saying, Have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he could pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Simon Peter asks, in the words of Eugene Peterson, If my brother or sister hurts me, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven? And Jesus said, Seven? How about seven times seven? Or in some of the oldest manuscripts, it has seventy times seven, meaning it could be forty-nine. It could be 490. Dr. Edward Schweitzer says what Jesus is saying is, Simon Peter, if you're still counting, you're not forgiving. Quit counting and keep forgiving. Then Matthew said, let me see, I need to illustrate that. Now I can understand that because that's what I do every week. I had a high school English teacher who said, I'm going to teach all of you how to write a term paper. You start with this much material, which you then move to this much material, which you move to this much material, after which you write an outline, and then you write the paper. And every Monday morning, I take down my commentaries and start with this much material. Tuesday morning, I'm here. Wednesday morning, I'm here. Thursday morning, I write an outline. And Friday, I'm looking for illustrations. Matthew said, let me see, how can I illustrate that so they will not forget? Now, we believe Matthew had in front of him, as he wrote, three documents at least. In front of him, the Gospel according to St. Mark, because there are places where he copies Mark entire paragraphs without varying even a word. He varies, he differs with Mark in some places, but it seems sure he's using Mark as a basic outline. He quotes from the Holy Writ, the Jewish Bible, which had by that time been translated into Greek. And the translation was called the Septuagint. And that's what Matthew uses when he quotes from Holy Writ, 
the Septuagint, word for word. We believe he also had in front of him a document the German scholars have called through the years the Quella, which means the source. We don't have it, but scholars are sure there was one because Matthew and Luke pull from that common document and tell stories not found in Mark, not found in John. The parables of Jesus. Some scholars believe Matthew should have looked a little farther that he didn't pick the story that went so very well with what had just been said. Take a look at it just a second, then we'll see what Matthew saw, and then we'll see what you and I might see if we had not had this placed in the context Matthew places it. Jesus has just said to Simon, No, you don't forgive seven times, but forty-nine, or four hundred and ninety. And then Matthew includes a story about a king who forgives somebody one time, and when he does not forgive somebody else one time, he takes back their forgiveness. Not multiple times. One time, and when things don't go well, he takes that one back. We'll come back to that. Let's look first of all at what Matthew intended by choosing the story. It's very clear what Matthew has in mind here. He equates the king with God. God has someone who owes him a lot of money. And he wants his money back. This is the way Matthew sees it. And it is a huge amount of money. Uh, you and I hear these big numbers tossed around in our world, and I think we hear them so often, we forget their significance. For example, if I use the word billion, I don't know if third graders know yet that a billion means a one followed by nine zeros. But do you know how many a billion really is? Let me give you an example. We know how quickly a second goes by. How long would a billion seconds be? 32 years. A billion seconds would take 32 years. That would have begun in 1975. How about a billion minutes? A billion minutes would go back more than 1900 years to the year 100 of this common era, about 70 years after Jesus was crucified and raised. How about a billion hours? A billion hours would take us all the way back to the Stone Age when our ancestors were living in caves and learning how to make the crudest kind of instruments by hammering on pieces of flint and rock. And how about a billion days? A billion days would take us back to a time when there were no human beings, at least not walking on two legs, almost three million years to have a billion days. Billion's a big number. Well, this indebtedness is big, too. A talent was the biggest denomination, if you would, of money that they had. You know we have $1 bills, and we have $5 bills, and $10 bills, and $20 bills, and $50 bills, and $100 bills. The talent was the biggest they had. And if you multiply that by 10,000, you get a really big number. For an example, next Sunday when we talk about those people working in the vineyard, we're going to talk about their being paid one denarius for working 12 hours in the vineyard. One denarius. If you divide a denarius into the number of that will fit into one talent and then multiply it by 10,000, you have the amount of money one person would earn if he worked every day for 150 
thousand years. One person working every day for 150,000 years. This is a huge amount of money we're talking about here. It's huge. Which causes today's scholars to say, you see, Jesus is not talking about anybody they really know. He's talking about numbers that would have had significance only in the huge Roman Empire. This is a story about a Gentile king, a tyrant, scholars today believe. That isn't the way Matthew wanted his readers to understand it. No, this is someone who had someone who owed a lot. This is going to be about forgiveness. Okay, number two. This man realizes he cannot pay this back, but he says, have patience with me and I will pay you back. But 150,000 years worth of work, he cannot pay back, so he next falls down on his knees. And this word for falling down on the knees is the same one used for the Magi that we call the three kings at Christmas time. We three kings of Orient are. When the Magi got to Bethlehem and saw Mary's baby, they fell down on their knees and gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh. This man falls down in that kind of worshipful pose and says, Please, sir, have patience with me. Daniel's chance is a school teacher. He's been teaching school for more than 30 years. And in his writings, he talks about his favorite pastime when he's not teaching school or grading papers at night. He likes to work on old cars. He said, It's really relaxing for me to get out in the garage there and work on an old car. But in working on old cars for more than 30 years, you know what I found? I found some cars that I could not even work the latch on the hood because it was so rusted. And if I tried and tried and finally got the latch undone, I couldn't lift the hood because the hinges were so rusted. I've worked on car engines where the spark plugs were welded to the block. I've worked on automobile engines where the oil filter was so stuck to the block I could not get it loose. And all of these problems resulting from the lack of a few drops of oil in the right place. And then he said, with our relationships, the oil of kindness, the oil of kindness could solve so many things. You've heard me say that I read the New Yorker magazine. And one of the things I enjoy about the New Yorker are the cartoons. Uh, you know that in every issue there are probably a dozen cartoons. But the New Yorker humor is different from most any other magazine I read. And recently I saw this again. Cartoon. Man and woman sitting at a table in a restaurant. They want you to believe this is a very nice restaurant. Flowers on the table, tablecloths and so on. And the man is breaking open a fortune cookie. And he pulls out the little piece of paper from the fortune cookie. You've probably eaten in Chinese places where you saw people do this. And usually you share with each other. What does yours say? What does yours say? And this man is reading to the woman what he's just pulled out of the fortune cookie. And it says, someday you will die. That's supposed to be humorous because that's not what people are expecting, you see. They're expecting something sort of silly maybe a little bit funny, like uh, tomorrow great things will happen to you, or be very careful tomorrow, you know, before you leap, uh, be sure you look, and so on. This one says, someday you will die. And that's funny, and it's not funny at all, because it's true of anyone who might open the cookie. It's true of anyone and everyone. 
And so we need that oil of kindness that comes from the one, the only one who can really set us right. The Wesleys, John and Charles, talked about sanctifying grace. They also talked about justifying grace and prevenient grace. But justifying grace meant that like keeping books on a business or maybe trying to justify your bank statement at the end of the month, God has never failed us, and we have failed God, so we don't balance with God. And only if God deposits into our side, so to speak, goodness and mercy, are the books justified. In those moments, we hear God's Spirit whisper to our innermost spirit, nothing stands between you and me. Nothing stands between you and me. Whatever there was, I have removed. So number three, this says about that king, he was moved with pity, your Bible says, and mine too, pity. But I think there's a better English word to translate this, because this is the same word Jesus used when he told another story one time. He said, once upon a time there was a man who was journeying down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I've been down that road. It was 17 miles in biblical times. It's 17 miles now. In biblical times, it was a rocky road descending, winding down the hills from Jerusalem to the River Jordan and the town of Jericho. Today, it's a superhighway, and you can drive 65, 70 miles an hour on this superhighway, but it's still curving and winding, and you go up 17 miles or down 17 miles, depending on which direction you're going. This man was going down that 17-mile crookedy road when suddenly some really bad people jumped out from behind the rocks and began to beat him, and they took everything he had, stripped him, and left him there in the desert sun to die. And a priest came by and didn't help. And a Levi came by and didn't help. And then, guess who came by? A Samaritan. One of their enemies came by. And Jesus tells the story, that Samaritan was moved with compassion. That's the word, and it's the same one here. Same word here. So this king is moved with compassion when he realizes this man cannot pay. And he's begging for patience. And he forgives his debt. He forgives. How does that feel? Joshua Sundquist has just finished his freshman year in college, starting second year. And he's writing about that first year as a freshman. He went to a university where all freshmen have to live in dormitory housing. And he said that uh, every morning, you know, he had to go to the men's restroom to shave and so on, where a lot of other guys. And one morning he walked in and the place did not smell like pine saw. smelled really good. And so he said to the guy next to him there, shaving, he said, uh, Wow, it really smells good here this morning. And the other asked, What does it smell like? And so Josh said, Well, uh, I don't know. What do you think? And the guy said, I don't know, because I can't smell. He said, What? And he said, I was born without a sense of smell. What does it smell like? And Joshua said, Well, I think it smells like fresh pineapples. To which the other asked, and what a fresh pineapple smell like? How would you tell somebody what a fresh pineapple smells like if they've never smelled one? And then Joshua, a young man of faith, writes, how do we describe what it feels like to be forgiven? How it feels to stand right with God? How to 
express to somebody that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Number four. Well, this fellow who's been forgiven starts out of the king's chambers and just as he does, he sees a man who owes him. Now, here you have to compare the two debts. And I have a little calculator on my desk and so I ran these numbers up and the debt owed him was one six hundred thousandth of what the first had owed. One six hundred thousandth. So really small compared to the first. But instead of forgiving as he had been forgiven, he grabbed the man by the throat, it says. He's choking him and saying, pay me what you owe. And he falls on his knees and says exactly what the other man had said to the king. Have patience with me. I will pay you. No. And he threw him into prison until he could pay. And he certainly can't pay in prison. Now the others saw what had happened. And they rushed to tell the king. And the king comes and says, you evil servant. And throws the first one into jail and says to those who are looking after him, torture him until he can pay. Can he ever pay wages for 150,000 years? He cannot pay. And so Dr. Brandon Scott says it means kill him. Kill him. Philip Zaleski says that when he was a boy, he got the idea that he would like to have a telescope. There was a lot of conversation about astronauts and people going to the moon. And he wanted a telescope. And he asked Santa Claus to bring him a telescope. And surely enough, Christmas morning, there was a telescope under the tree. Not very expensive. Not so very powerful. But really wonderful, he said. That first night, I could take it out into the backyard and point it toward the moon, which I could see with my eyes. But I could see through that little telescope mountains on the moon. It was really, really wonderful. And I even learned to look in other places in the sky. It was strong enough I could see the rings around Saturn. But after so many nights, I sort of tired of that. And it went into a closet. And I didn't look through it for years and years. But now he said I make more money. And I decided recently I was going to buy me a really good telescope. And so I looked on the Internet and I found exactly what I wanted. And I ordered it. And I could hardly wait for it to arrive. When it did arrive, I saw it late one afternoon when I got home from work. I waited till it was dark, rushed out in the backyard, and set up my new telescope, and I could see nothing. And I turned every knob and switch on it, and I could see nothing. I tried for almost an hour, turning knobs and switches. I could see nothing, and I finally brought it back in the house and said to my wife, It's broken. It doesn't work. And she said, I know you're tired and frustrated. But before you send it back, why don't you read the instructions? <laughs> and he said, I was so exasperated, I said, well, not now. And he brushed his teeth and went on to bed. But the next night when he got home from work and after dinner, he decided to read. And so he read for more than an hour and he took it out into the backyard. And this time he said, suddenly I could see the Pleiades more beautifully than I had ever imagined possible. Because, you see, those magnifying switches had to be turned in exactly the proper sequence. And if I didn't do the sequence properly, I could see nothing. And if the sequence was proper, 
I could see almost everything. Let's look at this story. Matthew says it is a wonderful story about forgiveness. We all owe more than we can repay. If we fall down on our knees and ask for forgiveness, it will be granted to us. God is good. If we do not forgive as we've been forgiven, God will not be happy. We have to forgive as God did. But Dr. Eugene Boring, Edward Schweitzer, Daniel Harrington, F.W. Bear, Robert Gundry, uh, Brandon Scott say, let's take another look at the story. A parable is sort of like a poem. You can have various people understand them in different ways. So the way Matthew uses it is fine for his gospel. What if Jesus intended something a little bit different? But Jesus is not describing God, they think. He's describing a Gentile tyrant king. This is a Gentile story because when wives and children are about to be sold into slavery, that was prohibited by the Torah. Uh, when one is tortured, that was prohibited by the Torah. Such a huge amount of money is not something they would have experienced in their everyday lives. This is about the Roman Empire, if you would, a Gentile king. And that the Jews who first heard Jesus tell the story would have smugly enjoyed it. Yeah, that's the way those heathen are. Yeah, that's the way those pagans are. But Dr. Brandon Scott believes the key to the story comes when the hearers are enjoying the story a great deal, when they are troubled that the man forgiven does not in turn forgive, they would identify with those who ran to the king and told what they had seen, and when they do, they have become just like him, not forgiving. When you run and tell, you didn't forgive either. And he said that means we become a part of this great axis of evil. We are a part of the sin of the world. That though Jesus, Dr. Scott believes, is talking about the kingdom of God in every parable that he tells, this is the only one where he uses an actual king. Because Jesus seems to be saying the kings you know and the kingdoms they've set up are not a good way of thinking about the kingdom of God. In all of these kingdoms, it's about what you owe me. Can you reimagine God's kingdom where it's about mercy and about forgiveness by everyone for everyone?